Some of you thought we'd probably never get here. But we are going to complete the Psalms. Kind of a bittersweet deal. But the last three Psalms are as good as the first three. Psalm 148, as we noticed in the, uh, noted when we started with Psalm 146, Psalm 146, 7, 8, 9, and 50 all begin and end with the statement, Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And this one does as well, obviously. Starts out, praise the Lord. Praise Him from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. And it goes on. And then it ends with praise the Lord. And Psalm 148 focuses more on where God should be praised. And as we go to Psalm 148, we will see in some detail that both heaven and earth praise the Lord. Adam Clark wrote this. He said, This call to creation to praise Yahweh is not an empty wish. Revelation 5, 11 to 13 tells us specifically that it will be fulfilled. Oh, what a hymn of praise is here. It is a universal chorus. All created nature have a share and all perform their respective parts. With this thought, we then have the words of Jesus, or took me to the words of Jesus in Luke 19, 37-40, during his triumphal entry, when some of the Pharisees criticized Jesus for accepting the praise of the people. And in verse 37, Jesus said, it says, And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And this is a very interesting statement that Jesus replied with. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Luke 19, 37-40. And then there is Revelation 5, 11-13, which Adam Clark referred to, but he didn't quote from it. It says this, then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's another word for a lot, right? Myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. So who was praising God? And every created 
thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea who is praising God. Then I got think about thinking about the praising of God and how some critics are bent on criticizing God no matter what. Why does God want to be praised? And I've heard people just show their ignorance by stating that because they don't want to acknowledge God. But looking at Psalm 148, it says that God should be praised everywhere. And this includes, and we'll see as we go through it, heaven, angels, the earthly heavens, everything that has been created, both plants and animals, all people of every rank, every class, every age, and every gender. And we need to be very careful about this next thing. Only he is to be praised and worshipped. No one else. Does God need our praise? No. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need anything from us. But he alone is worthy of our praise. Nothing else is. If we go to Exodus 20, verse 7, it states this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands. To those who love me and keep my commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. That God is a jealous God has caused a lot of angst for some. Primarily because they equate this to human jealousy. I listened to our favorite theologian, Oprah, <laughs> say that well I was a Christian but you know when I was following the church and they got up and they said God was a jealous God and I just checked out why would God be jealous that's wrong so she's criticizing God for being jealous but she didn't understand what the word even means right it does not mean that God is envious which is a lot of how we tend to think of the word I'm jealous of you. I want what you got. <clears throat> he is not jealous because of something he needs. God is demonstrating that he is possessive of the worship and the service that belongs to him. That's what it says in Exodus 20. It is a sin, as God points out in this commandment, to worship or serve anyone or anything else. So God is possessive of the worship that belongs to him. And you go through that part in, in Exodus. Worshiping someone else is not acceptable. And it's not very smart either because you're worshiping something that can do nothing. 
So, the first six verses of this psalm begin with praise from the heavens. It says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. So this psalm begins with the praise from the heavens. It also says in verse 1 that God is to be praised in the heights. This is brought out in Psalm 19 too. Way back when, when we were in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. So how do the heavens declare the glory of God? Boyce wrote on this. He said, We are not to suppose that the writer imagines the sun, moon, and stars literally speak words of praise to God. The way they glorify God is by their mere existence. So what do you think when you see some of the incredible pictures that we get from high-powered telescopes like the Hubble? I just put a couple on the screen here, put a couple of them, printed them on your paper. The print doesn't do justice, right? I mean, it's phenomenal what the universe looks like. And this glorifies God for their mere existence. And the more we see, the more we... There's more incredible things out there. God receives praise from its angels. It says, who too, also in verse 6, verse 2. Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5 are a couple passages that also bring this out. That the heavenly hosts are at God's command was also stated by Jesus the night he was betrayed and arrested, as we read in Matthew chapter 26, 53, where Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. Interesting that Peter had a sword, but another deal. Angels are created beings and they worship God. If God needed worship, he doesn't need it from us. He already gets it from angels. But read Isaiah 6. Read Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 because they're incredible pictures of the angels worshiping God. We could spend a long time just you know, going through and reading those things, but they're great passages. Going on in Psalm 148. After speaking about the heavens and all that is there as praising the Lord, the attention of verse 7 turns to what is happening on earth. They are doing the same thing, praising the Lord. Verse 7 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail and snow and mist, 
stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. So what we have here in verse 7 to 10 is both animals and inanimate objects both praise God. As I was typing these pages, the thought struck me. In these ten verses of praising God, all that he has created, the heavens, the sea creatures, the beasts, the livestock, the inanimate things, the mountains, the hills, plants, birds, even the weather-related events like fire, hail, snow, and wind, nothing in our universe is excluded from praising God. Nothing. Everything is included. What do we as people struggle doing? Rightly praising God. Mm-hmm. We can praise many other things. But generally speaking, we need to improve our praising of God. We have no trouble praising our favorite sports team if they do good. But we can all improve on praising our God. Because everything else that God has created praises Him. You know, in Paul's day, cultures worshipped mortal things instead of worshipping God. Romans 1, 22 and 23 bring it out. It says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then if we go to Isaiah 44, 9 to 20, that's another passage that speaks about the foolishness of worshiping an idol or a God that can do nothing. You create it out of wood, you use part of it to burn, make a fire to cook your meal, and you carve the other one, and then you worship that as your God. When we compare the praising of God as indicated in these first 12 verses of Psalm 148 to the lack of praise to God, or could we say an outright mockery of God, there is a vast difference. You know, humans were created in fashion in God's image. But humans would rather worship ourselves than humble ourselves before our designer and creator in worship. It's just, the more you think about that, you go, whoa, why do we do that? Well, we're sinners. As Boyce points out, he says this, and I put the quote in your, in your notes. The problem is that in that the problem is that in our fallen state, we seek substitutes for God. If we do not worship the angels, animals or nature, we will worship the only thing left, which is ourselves. And that's what we do today. We worship ourselves. And that takes the glory away from God. And he is jealous of worship to him. Again, we need to understand the only reason that we as believers 
are able to worship God is because God himself in his grace has pulled us to himself and snatched us from this unbelief to belief. It was not our intellect. It was not our desirability. It was an incredible gift from God. So when we think about our world that does not worship God, we cannot for a second think, well, look at me, I don't do that. No. It's not because of me. It's because God changed my life and pulled me out and showed me his truth and then gave me the everything I needed to do to change. Then we go on in Psalm 148 and verses 10 or 11 to 13. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, his majesty is above earth and heaven. So in these verses, 11 to 13, every person, all peoples, all nations, not just Israel, are called to praise the Lord. Then there are no exclusions, none. Kings, princes, rulers, the young are all called out to praise God. You know, if you look at the kings, princes, rulers, and the young, one thing that those, that those groups have is those in power think they're pretty, pretty, pretty clever. Look at me, you know. I'm the ruler of the, uh, this nation, or I'm the whatever. And then the young, of course, the young thing, they can, you know, they're in, invulnerable, that they are, in, you know, their strength and power is going to last forever, but they're called out here. They all have a general trait is their self-confidence and their self-worth. But compared to the almighty God, it's nothing. It's nothing. Spurgeon wrote on this section of these three verses. He said, What a happy day it will be when it is universally acknowledged that through our Lord Jesus, the incarnate wisdom, kings reign and princes decree justice. It'll be great when everyone acknowledges how God and then in verse 14, it says, He has raised up a horn for his people and prays for his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. Now, the use of the word horn is a way to refer to strength, referring to what God does for Israel. A guy named William Van Gemeren wrote, God loves and cares for all his creation, but he has a special affinity for his people. And then, like the rest of the Psalms from 146 to 150, we have a very fitting conclusion. Praise the Lord. So what you have in Psalm 148 is this whole of creation. Everyone, everything should praise the Lord. There's no exceptions. God should be praised everywhere by everyone.
That real quickly is Psalm 148. So now let's go to Psalm 149. It's a little shorter psalm, but it starts out the same, again, the same theme of praising God. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. If you were in the first service, Dirk started quoting the psalm, and I didn't hear real quickly which one he was quoting, but he started with these two lines, and so I had to look really fast to see if he was quoting from this, but he quoted from a different one. Sing to the Lord a new song in the praise, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker and the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. This starts out, sing to the Lord. Singing is a joyful and natural way to praise God. And singing, why is that different than talking? Well, singing generally generally involves more emotion than just talking. I am not the greatest singer in the world. I appreciate a good voice, but there have been occasions that I've had to sing at funerals. I hate it, even if I don't know the people. Because it's hard to sing when you have this emotion going on that's different, that can, conflicts with the emotion of singing. It's just, it's just hard to do. I could talk, because you can talk without having that emotional thing. But singing is emotion. I don't know if you've ever seen this. You probably have observed a little kid when they're playing and they're happy. They'll start singing some little ditty. And it's really cute to watch. Right? And it doesn't matter if they're singing on key, off key, the words are right or words are wrong. It just it's just this 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 happiness, the feeling of joy. But we as we as adults, when we sing, frequently when we sing, we're happy or we have a temporarily uh, have, have a reprieve from the pressing things in your life. If things are really tough, it's hard to sing because you've got that behind you in your mind. And so here we are speaking about singing praise to God also when assembling with others. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Congregational singing, congregational praising of God is something we do not want to push aside or think is not important or a filler until the message starts. There's a lot of people in this church and other churches, not so much here, it's getting better, but, you know, the service starts at 9, they'll have about 10 minutes, 15 minutes of singing, about 5 minutes of other stuff. I'll show up about 9.30 and I'll catch the whole message. Now, it's one thing to be late because something happens. But some people, well, that's just my, I can, I can do away with that. No. It's not something that is a filler. Sing praise in the assembly of the godly. 
Listening to Christmas, Christian music is not the same thing as singing. In my opinion, sadly, congregational singing has dwindled substantially in the past few decades. Worship bands are commonplace. And while the original intent of many worship bands was to better lead the people in singing, that's how they got, well, let's help them and lead them in singing, they've become in many cases, maybe even more than 50%, I would think more than 50%, they become more performance-oriented. And now the congregation is the audience and so the participation in singing is substantially down. And so is the praising of, the God, of God in the assembly of the godly. We are to sing. Connie and I went to a church north of here for a while. And there was about 25 people in it that maybe. And boy, those people sang to, their, to, the, to, the, to the top of their capability. Were they any good? No. It was great. Because they sang. They sang. And they sang with vigor. They were praising God. And we need to do, we need to do that. Seeing his praise in the assembly of the godly. Now also notice this. And I know I'm getting on a soapbox. But hey this passage takes us there. So we're fine. Singing his praise in the assembly of, God, uh, of the godly is not considered something optional. It's something we are to do. And then the other thing we need to think about, it's a privilege to sing praises to God. He is worthy. He is our God, our Father, and our Sovereign Lord. As Exodus 15.2 states, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him on my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. Think about, think about Islam. They say that Allah cannot be known. That's their doctrine. And we have a God who wants to hear us praising him in the assembly of the godly. Now there are verses and verses that tell us to sing praises to the Lord. And this is just one, pot, one example. There are lots of them in scripture. Psalm 30 verse 4 says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. We get to do that. Then it goes on in verse 2. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. <clears throat> verse 2 asks that God's children show gladness and be glad in their maker or their king. There's a guy named Robert Hawker. He lived from 1753 to 1827. He was called the Star of the West. He lived in England. He's the Star of the West for his preaching. And he wrote this insight on ver in verse 2. <clears throat> it's kind of a long one. And again, he wrote it um, back in the 1700s. But it's pretty good. I beg the reader to remark with me 
Here is nothing said of Israel being joyful in what their king had done for them. These things in their proper place became sweet subjects of praise. But the subject of praise in which Israel is now to be engaged is Jesus himself. Or, you know, he, got, he, he used the word Jesus, but it's God in this case. Reader, pause over this apparently small but most important distinction. The Lord is gracious in his gifts, gracious in his love, gracious in his salvation. Everything he gives, it is from mercy and ever to be so acknowledged. But Jesus' gifts are not himself. I cannot be satisfied with his gifts while I know that to others he gives his person. It is Jesus himself I want. Though he will give me all things that I need, Yet, if he be to me himself, all the things that I need, in him I have all things. Hence, therefore, let us see that Jesus not only gives us all, but that he is our all. I thought that's a pretty good, pretty good distinction he brought out. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. We should be glad in our maker and rejoice in our king. Note that verse 2, it says God is our maker. You ever read Genesis 1? God is our maker. Romans 1.21 speaks about those who, while they know God, that God is their creator, they refuse to honor him as such. Here we are admonished to honor him appropriately in that he is our maker. And also, he is our king or our sovereign. Now, Jesus as king is a thought that doesn't get a whole lot of press in our culture. Non-believers love to think that Jesus is a good teacher, but they will not acknowledge him as king. Why? Because if he is king, there's a responsibility to abide by his teachings. Jesus is our king and our maker. Then in verse 3, we go on. And what takes place starting in verse 3 is the outpouring of gladness and rejoicing in the Lord, praising and making melody to him. It says, let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with the tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people and he adorns the humble with salvation. These actions are an expression of gratitude to the Lord. And it is clear that God is pleased with the proper praise of him. And that he accepts this praise. I love that in verse 4. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Spurgeon wrote this, Why is there in us which the Lord can take, or what, what is there in us that the Lord can take pleasure in? Nothing unless he puts it there. If he sees beauty in us, 
it must be that this is Spurgeon going on. If he sees beauty in us, it must be the reflection of his own face. Yet still the text says so, and therefore it must be true. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. Just sit down and ponder that for a few minutes. He takes pleasure in his people, but he gave us everything that we need so he could take pleasure in us. And then that he adorns the humble with salvation is a constant teaching throughout Scripture. James 4, 6, for example, says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. 2 Timothy 1, or 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 5, says, but understand this, that in the last days will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Proud and arrogant. And then Proverbs 21, 4, it says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. And what's the one thing that our culture promotes? Self-pride. Yeah. Self and by golly, that's my right. That's right. That's my right. Don't you take it away from me. We are we are told from this high, you know, and you know we do proud really good. We do. Okay, and that's not. <clears throat> but the Lord adorns the humble with salvation. Alexander McLaren, who lived from 1826 to 1910, he wrote this. The qualification for receiving Jehovah's help is meekness. And the effect on that help of the lowly soul is to deck it with strange loveliness. Everything that we've been taught as far as you know, our self-worth and our self-pride and all that, the Lord loves the humble, adorns the humble with salvation. And like he says, like McLaren says, he decks it with strange loveliness. Then we go on in this psalm in verse 5. Yes. Loveliness. Yeah, loveliness. Maybe I, I get my tang tangled sometimes. Starting in verse 6 and continuing through the beginning of verse 9, there's an anticipation of the victory that God will bring. It says, Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats, the two-edged swords in their hands, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chain and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute them on, ju- on the judgment written. This is the honor for all the godly ones. Praise the Lord. Now, as we read these verses, we need to be careful not to take them 
as approval to become militant against our enemies. And I would like to say that everyone's done that. But if you go back in history, especially I was reading about some of them, um, oh, about the time of, of the Reformation and Luther's Day and in there, there were some wars that went on. and uh, Some of these guys would take this, jerk it out of context and say, this is why we need to go to war. No. Okay. No. Because vengeance is the Lord's. On this, David Guzik wrote this. They bear a two-edged sword in their hand, demonstrating both the use of the practical weapons and means in a spiritual sense, reliance upon God's word, which is described as a two-edged sword in Revelation 19.15, and even sharper than any two-edged sword in Hebrews 4.12, and as the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6.17. And then I need to add one of Spurgeon's comments. The word of God is all edge, whichever way we turn it. It strikes deadly blows at falsehood and wickedness. If we do not praise, it shall grow sad in our conflict. And if we do not fight, we shall become presumptuous in our song. The verse indicates a happy blending of the chorister, chorister and the crusader. So this is not saying go out and start wars. Not what it's saying at all. And then it ends, like it began, with hallelujah, praise the Lord. Then we get, thought we'd never get here, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Psalm 150. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a short one, and I think you get the thing. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What do you think the thing is? Praise we have reached the concluding psalm, and this psalm is the perfect ending to the 149 that have come before. Everything in this psalm is about praising the Lord. Like the last several psalms, it begins and ends with the statement, Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. And Psalm 150 is a charge to everyone, everywhere, throughout all history. To give God the glory due Him. Alexander McLaren wrote this. He said, This psalm is more than artistic, more than an artistic close of the Psalter. It is a prophecy of the last result of the devout life. And in its unclouded sunniness, as well as in its universality. It proclaims the certain end of the weary years for the individual and for the world. It proclaims the certain end of the weary years for the individual and for the world. Let everything that hath breath breath shall yet praise the Lord. 
Now this psalm is the climax of the psalms. Everything that we do in our life needs to be focused on praising and honoring the Lord. Regardless of any and all circumstances. It doesn't say praise Him when things are going good. Praise Him when you won the lottery. No, praise Him all the time. For everything. Now, I read this through and it reminded me of something. And then I read a commentary and they brought it up as well. It reminded me of the statements of Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. And as I read through that, it it just took me right to the Hallelujah Chorus, which is, by the way, the end of part two of the Messiah. I I had to make sure. I asked Connie. I said, I didn't think it was the end of the Messiah. It's end of part two of the Messiah. Messiah is like, what, 90 minutes long or something? It's long. You better have your voice in good shape if you're going to sing the whole thing. But I envision this psalm being proclaimed in a similar manner as you hear the Hallelujah Chorus. Now, how are you supposed to hear the Hallelujah Chorus? Here's how you're supposed to hear it. A humongous choir. A pipe organ that's huge, that's filling it, that's booming. And throw in a full orchestra playing. And singing, and all the singing is in fortissimo. You know what that is? Loud, the two F's. Okay? Sometimes when you read music, there'll be three F's, even though it's not legal to do that. It's not a real word. Two F's is loud. Okay? It's kind of the opposite of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. You know, Psalm 1 starts out totally, totally different. I'm going to go there. Just I didn't have it written down. And if I tried to quote it, I'd probably mess it up. But Psalm 1, when we began this back in 2018, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its seasons, and his leaf does not wither, and whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sitters in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here we have just the opposite. Praise the Lord. Praise Him in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent goodness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance, with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I mean, you know, let it come with gusto. And as we read through this psalm, the word hallelujah or praise the Lord fills every line of this psalm. Every line. And as we read through these verses, we also see where we should praise the Lord. In His sanctuary. In the heavens. Why we should praise the Lord. For His mighty deeds. 
according to his excellence. How should we praise the Lord? With the trumpet, with the lute and harp, with tambourine and dance, with strings and pipe, with cymbals. Those are the smaller cymbals. And with great big crashing cymbals. And I played in orchestras. And sometimes the instrument I played, I'm sitting right in front of the percussion. The only thing worse is being in front of the trombones. Because you can't hear yourself either way. But if you're right in front of the percussion, you know, if they're doing little dinky cymbals, it's not bad. But when they crash them, you know, you better not, number one, be aware it's coming, and you can't hear for a while. And we could add instruments that we use today. The piano, the oboe, the string bass, the saxophone. You get the picture. Praise Him. And lastly, but certainly not the least, maybe the most important, with our breath, with our voice. To summarize, we're to praise the Lord with all our being. And there is so much to praise Him for. There's never a time not to praise Him. And much of our praise should not be silent. I thought about this, and I'm going to ask you to do another little homework, and maybe you can bring this for next week. Why don't each of you begin a list, maybe ten things. You can go more if you want. Make a list of ten things I need to praise the Lord for. Some of them, we all might write very similar things. But let's praise God. Now, one last word of caution. This is praise to the Lord. This is not for entertainment of man or for the praise of man. A lot of churches today, and I would say the majority, have their worship backwards. They focus on the opposite of where it should be. They focus on man. All of our focus should be on God. And I, we could bring up um, song after song after song and the way that's done. It's, oh, thank you, know, all about me, what I have been given. You know, it's, it's nice to talk about um, things that God has provided for us, but we need to praise God. God I do think that that's something that we we always need to fight that the praise is to the Lord for the Lord and you know what everyone here if you're a believer you are going to see the praise of God in his perfect beauty turn to Revelation 5 Verse 13. And think about this as we're going through it. If we are believers, part of God's redeemed, we get to participate here. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth 
and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I'll let you in when we get to the I don't know exactly where I'm going to work, work this quote in but there's a quote a very small quote from Spurgeon talking about heaven when, when we get there in a couple of weeks and he said soon every one of us here are going to know about he- heaven than the foremost Christian scholar in the world because we'll be there and this will be one thing that happens James Boyce's closing comments in his commentary are this. We cannot praise God without meditating on his word. For we will only praise God as we come to know him. And the only way we will come to know him is through his self-disclosure of himself in the Bible. So let's conclude with let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let's pray.